from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, for the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I think most of you would agree that uh, it's good to have contingency plans to be prepared uh, you know, we think about life insurance, car insurance, we think about health insurance. You know, we, it makes sense to us to have a plan, to have a backup plan. We think about savings accounts, if the market or if finances become tight, that's a good thing. You know, particularly around Raleigh, whenever there's the threat of precipitation in the winter air, people get prepared. They buy milk and bread. I, I've never understood that really, but, but that's the, all the shelves are cleared of milk and bread. If you think about even the Boy Scouts, what is their motto? It's always be prepared. I think Peter, as an apostle, but also a pastor, is trying to prepare his people. Now, you know where we've been in this story so far. He's encouraged the people to live well in the world. He starts out reminding us of our great salvation. Then he speaks about how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. And then he begins detailing how we relate to one another, or in the world, I should say, with the government and with employers, and then with each other. But now he's going to kind of turn a little bit and teach us how to relate to the world in the face of suffering. He wants us to be prepared. You don't want to learn rock climbing when you're already hanging off the rock. Before we enter suffering, he wants to instruct us. He wants to teach us how we're to respond to it. And if you were to look at the sermon kind of in two boxes, the first box would be he's going to give us some instructions about what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to look at suffering, how you're supposed to handle it. And then the second box, the second point would be he gives us reasons or motivations. He tries to encourage us using Jesus as both an illustration of how to suffer, but also a motivation. So let's look at the first box, which is simply, how do we suffer? When we encounter various trials, what do we do? How do we handle it? What do we say? What are we to think about? Well, the first thing we're going to see is that in suffering, you need and I need to remember that there is a great blessing for us in suffering. Look with me back at 13 and 14. He says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? In other words, I think this is generally true. I mean, it, if we are upstanding citizens, 
walking in a moral fashion, walking with integrity, being a good neighbor. I think by and large, most people, even non-Christians, will look at us and they won't speak evil about us generally. They'll probably speak kind of good about us. Good neighbor to have. And Proverbs says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So I think that's generally true. I mean, if we walk in a way worthy of the gospel, I think that most people will look at us um, with kindness and with grace. But not always. It's only generally true. It's not always true. Notice he says here about, he says, but even if you should suffer, there are, um, as you seek to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, you will not find favor with every single person. As you strive to obey Christ and his commands in the workplace and in the neighborhood and in your family, you may run into rejection and ridicule and some condemnation, maybe some marginalization. You know, righteous living does trouble some people. I mean, Paul did say all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. I mean, think about it for a minute. I I think it makes sense to you. If you're a Christian and you're even somewhat outspoken about your faith in a college dorm. There's going to be a measure of ridicule, maybe some jesting, some joking, maybe some mocking. Or if you if you're bring up faith, Christian faith, in a moral philosophy class at a major university, they're not going to give you a round of applause. They'll probably make some jokes about it, maybe pull away from you a little bit. If you're interviewed, if you're coming off a sporting event and you spoke about the nature of your faith, There's going to be marginalization. There's going to be mockery. There's going to be kind of, this is the village idiot because he believes these things. So I I do think that Peter is preparing us. That's why he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, I think you can expect that at one point, unless you remain absolutely silent and absolutely separate. But if you, in any measure, in any way, begin to walk out your faith, I think he's saying here, if you, when you should suffer for righteousness' sake. But what he says, notice, he says, you'll be blessed. In other words, that he is encouraging us that in suffering, we are to look to the blessing that we're going to receive. Now, the blessing that we'll receive may come in some measure in this life. But I think what Peter's looking at is he's calling us to look further down the road. He's calling us to look at what we will be blessed with in God. In fact, he says this more clearly in chapter 4, just a few verses forward. He says, rejoice insofar as you share in his sufferings. If you're insulted for the name of Jesus, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus said the same thing. He says, blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil things about you. For my name's sake. He says, your reward in heaven will be great. So I think Peter's trying to, to have us think in the midst of suffering that we have to have one eye on that final day. On that final day when we talked about in chapter 1, verse 5, when we will receive an imperishable inheritance. So if you're a Christian here, the Christian lives with an eye to the day. John, Jonathan Edwards was this Puritan preacher in New England in the 18th century, and he wrote this sermon called A Pilgrim's Journey. He says, A Christian's Journey to Heaven. 
that his eyes are on heaven, that, that if we are aliens and pilgrims, as we've read about in chapter 1 and chapter 2, if this, if this world is not ours, if we have a citizenship in another place, uh, then the pilgrim is always looking for that day when he'll finally get to the end of his pilgrimage because then he finally gets to receive all that has been given to him. I think sometimes we are a little reticent to talk about the hope we have in heaven. We kind of get that jeer, as C.S. Lewis says. In, in fact, he, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he's trying to deal with this idea of God's goodness and the existence of suffering. And C.S. Lewis wrote about this. And here's what he said. It's kind of an extended quote, so give me a, a minute to get through it. He says, We are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We're afraid of the jeer about a pie in the sky and of being told that we are trying to escape from the duty of making a happy world here and now into dreams of a happy world elsewhere. But either there is a pie in the sky or there's not. If there is not, then Christianity is false, for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. If there is, then this truth, like any other, must be faced, whether it's useful at political meetings or not. Again, we are afraid that heaven is a bribe, and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can, re- can desire. It's safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. There are... Uh, there are rewards, excuse me, there are rewards that do not sully motives. A man's love for a woman is not mercenary because he wants to marry her, nor his love for poetry mercenary because he wants to read it, nor his love of exercise less disinterested because he wants to run and leap and walk. Love, by definition, seeks to enjoy its object. So if that is our goal, that the Christian is to be thinking about that, dwelling upon it. So when you enter suffering, That is in the backdrop of the suffering. You must keep in your mind that reward that God has promised to us. It's not a bribe. If we long for it, it's good to desire it. Now, I would warn the Christian to be mindful of the false teachers and teaching that say, if you believe in God, you won't have problems. If you live a good life, you won't experience conflict. This is not true. Not true at all. Now, now we in Western society here have been kind of in a bubble in terms of the Christian faith. And I think the time of living in a bubble is beginning to end. That our pluralism today is not so disposed to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. That, that, there is, that the idea of tolerance is a wonderful idea until it looks at that which it deems intolerant. And so I think there's going to be, as one author said, this polite persecution, you know, the marginalization, the mocking, the losing jobs, the being threatened with lawsuits when you begin to walk out your convictions. And I think we need to be prepared for this. And looking at that, we have to keep in view the reward that heaven will be. So, so in suffering... You must look at the blessing. But, but secondly, in suffering, you're to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Look, look in 14. He says this, kind of interesting words. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So remember, Peter is talking to these Christians in Asia Minor, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia, that northern rim of what we would see as Turkey now. 
And, and he's telling them, you know, they're the staggering minority, right? They're Christians, staggering minority. The weight of Rome is significant, and it's pressing on them. But Peter says, hey, you don't have to be troubled by that. You don't, have, don't even fear them. It seems kind of odd to say that. But remember what he's just said in verses 11 and 12. He says, the eye of the Lord is on the righteous. His ear is attentive to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against and opposed to the wicked. In other words, he's saying, do not fear because God is present. His sovereign hand. You know, John Knox was a Scottish reformer back in the 16th century. And he said this, he said, whoever's side God is on, they're in the majority. In other words, if God's on your side, you're going to be okay. You are in the majority. So he's saying, do not fear. But Peter's not saying to the Christian, don't fear at all. He's saying, don't fear them. He says, but rather, fear or honor the Lord. Honor Christ the Lord. So he's calling us to look at society, and while there may be threats among it, he's saying, don't fear them. Fear Christ the Lord is holy. Now, he's drawing his encouragement out of Isaiah 8. And if you remember the context of Isaiah 8, Isaiah the prophet, the Old Testament prophet, he's challenging the king of Judah. This king of Judah is threatened by these northern countries who are going to invade his nation. And so he makes an alliance with a pagan king of Assyria. He goes to a pagan king. He doesn't turn to God. He turns to a pagan king, and he makes an alliance with them. And he says, hey, come help, because I'm, I'm in fear of these nations to the north. And so Isaiah challenges the king, and here's what he says. He says, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. That's the line that we have in Peter. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. In other words, he's a sanctuary to those who trust in him. He will be like a refuge. He'll be like a shelter. But to those who don't fear him, he will be like a crushing stone. He'll be like a rock of offense to those who thwart him or, a, or, or who fight against him. And so what he's saying here is, in suffering, honor the Lord as holy. What Peter's doing is, this verse from Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking about Yahweh. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the one that you fear is holy. But now he says, no, 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 Jesus is equal to God in his holiness. And that word for holy there, you know, honor Christ the Lord is holy. We're not talking about a moral purity here. We're talking about an otherness, a, a, a complete separateness. So when you think about God being separate, think about him in this way. So go back with me to creation in Genesis 1. There was nothing. Nothing. It wasn't that there was like silence. Silence, we think of nothing as silence. There was nothing. Jonathan Edwards says, this is what rocks do when they're asleep. But it was even less than that. There was nothing. And God speaks and worlds are formed. What kind of power is that? Everything we do has some antecedent. Everything we do has some prior work. There was nothing. God spoke, and a sun was formed. Stars, planets, 
life just speaks and it all happens. That's, a, that's, a, that's something other than anything we're familiar with or knowledgeable about or we can do. So when he says, he says, honor the Lord, Christ the Lord is holy. He's saying, honor him as so unique and different and other than anything we could ever even imagine. And this draws us to honor him because there is no comparison to him. And this idea of honoring the word is actually precious. Consider him precious and valuable. Because if you consider Christ as supremely valuable because of his absolute otherness, you will fear no one. Holding him as valuable will replace the dread in your soul of anything for him alone. I mean, you kind of see it somewhat analogous to a, a woman that pulls up and her house is engulfed in flames, her child's in the second floor, and, and there's no way to get in without absolutely bringing danger and harm to yourself. And, and what would she do? She wouldn't even think of it. She wouldn't be distracted by the flames. She wouldn't be distracted by the fear. She would just rush in because of the value of the child is so significant that she would throw herself. Nothing would cause fear for her because of the value of the child. Well, as we honor Christ the Lord as valuable and as holy, it will replace the dread that we have for anything in this world. And that's what Peter's saying. And remember who's saying this. It's Peter. Peter, if you remember him back in the court of the high priest, a mere servant girl asked him a few questions if he had been a disciple of Jesus. And what does he do? He runs in fear. He runs in fear over a servant girl who's asking questions. And yet now Peter's instructing us why. Because when he saw Christ, the Lord, resurrected, he had no fear. Do you remember he went before the Sanhedrin? He says, no, we must obey God, not man. They said, don't preach. No, we're going to preach. He's beaten for it and he leaves happy. He leaves happy that he was counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That's a changed man. It shows you. Perfect example. You honor Christ the Lord as holy, you won't fear. So, so th this for the Christian here, I, I don't want to tell you don't fear. I just want to say have a right fear. I mean, fear Christ the Lord is holy. I don't want you to fear cancer. I don't want you to fear terrorism. Don't want to, I don't want you to fear the, the downturn of financial markets, some health crisis. I don't want you to fear that. I want you to fear Christ. Keep him in your mind. Like, like, like think about John the Apostle. Back in chapter 13, he's resting on the breast of Jesus. They're buddy-buddy. They're John the Apostle, Jesus, they lived together for three years, loved each other. Good friends, right? Well, then when John sees Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, if you remember the scene, Christ, his face is shining in the strength of the sun. His eyes are like blazing fire, hair white as wool. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. John's not leaning on his breast anymore. John falls on his face as though dead because of this crucified but now resurrected and glorified Savior. So Christian, we're called to fear him. Do you fear him? I mean, do you think about his glory and his power and his otherness? When you encounter threats, do you line them up against him? Do you consider him? What do you fear most? What do you fear losing most? What do you fear facing most? Is he not able? Can he not displace fears? 
Now, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm always thankful when people come to kind of investigate the faith, even if they just come kind of out of curiosity. You know, I wouldn't say to a non-Christian to not fear. I mean, there is a lot in the world to fear. I, I think we kind of see the fear in people. I, I, and let, let me bring up a, a, an analogy. I actually kind of think it's, you know, our country has decreased, I would say, in its overall faith in God as a sovereign king. And I think as you see this decrease in the faith of this nation, not saying that Christ, the nation was ever a Christian nation, Christians maybe in this nation, but as the general faith decreased in God, there's kind of been a corresponding uptick in looking to the government for help and looking to the government for aid. This is natural. This isn't political, it's natural. Why? Because we know we don't have what it takes to face terrorism and physical threats and, and, and um, health crises and, and the financial markets. We don't have inside of us what we need. And so we have to turn to something bigger and something what we perceive is better. And so this is move toward the government. And I'm just saying to the non-Christian, that this is where God comes in. The, the, the government cannot stop. We want the government to stop all forms of terrorism. They can't. Nobody can do that. Only God can provide the kind of protection and sustaining and grace. No government can. But our longing for the government to do it shows us that we're in fear and shows us that we need to get right with God. Okay, so, so when, we can, when we are in suffering, number one, we want to we remember that blessing that God has for us. Number two, we want to honor Christ as, as holy. And then number three, we want to be prepared. Look in 15. We want to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of the hope that's within us. Now, now let me explain this, because I think we often, um, I think we misinterpret this one actually a little bit. Not completely, but a little bit. When he says that you're to be prepared to make a defense, if anyone asks for the hope that's within you, he is not saying you need to be a Bible scholar. He is not saying you have to be able to answer every objection uh, to the resurrection. You don't have to give solid answers every time to people who ask about how is God good and suffering exists. You don't have to defend the, the existence of God or the Bible. He's not saying that. Look at what he says. He says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks, so people are going to ask you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Now, the whole thing is set in the context of what? Of suffering. In other words, what he's saying is, when you are suffering, be prepared to speak to the hope that you have in God, his sustaining grace, his forgiveness, his adoption. In other words, when you lose your job, when you face a health crisis, when you are struggling in life, he's saying, and, and you continue to delight in God, you continue to worship God, you continue to seek God, you continue to serve your neighbor, people are going to ask you, where is your hope? Because the world has their hope in those things, and if you lose them but you still have hope, where is your hope? And he's saying, be prepared to tell them where your hope is. Or if you're ridiculed at work, or if you lose a job, you get passed over. Someone lies about you and you take the heat for it. And then you still serve them and you still love them. You don't return evil for evil. That's what we learned last week. But you bless. You don't act with retaliation. 
You, in fact, help them if they need your help, even though they may have spoken about you before. And they're going to ask you, why do you do this? Where is your hope? You know, these things the world is counting on for meaning, you've lost them, and you haven't lost your hope. I think that's what he's saying here. Where is your hope? If someone would ask you, if they were to come up and they see you in crises, they see you struggling, and yet you're happy in God, they're going to say, how? how? What gives? And you say, I have the forgiveness of God in Christ. I believe in the gospel of salvation that Jesus Christ has come to deliver. I have a promise from God that he will never leave me nor forsake me. I don't have to fear what I'm going to eat, drink, or what I'm going to wear. My heavenly Father knows I need these things. He will care for me. That's where our hope is. I think that's what he's saying here. He's not saying you have to go out and be the Bible answer man. You simply need to tell people when they ask you, what are you hoping in in the midst of this crisis? My hope is not the recovery of my estate. It's in my God who will care for me and protect me. I think that's what he's saying. And he says, do it in gentleness with respect. In other words, that we, as we speak for the gospel, and as we speak about the nature of our faith, we've all seen the Christian apologist who is bombastic and argumentative and interruptive. You've seen sometimes they're on television, and they're sparring as much as the, the pagans they're sparring with. We don't, we don't want to do that. The gospel doesn't need that kind of defense. We want to do it with gentleness. And gentleness is not weakness. And we used this word before for the woman. It's a strength under control. That's what gentleness, that's what the Greek word means. It's gentleness under control. We want to be firm in our convictions, but we want to be kind in the way we speak. So be prepared for the... Now, what we're saying here then is the Christian is to see his or her suffering as an opportunity to love God more and be prepared to give a response to those who ask. So in the darkness of our life, God's goodness can shine the brightest as you maintain your hope in him and speak of it to others. I mean, I mean for the non-Christian, if you face the loss of job or the news that you've got cancer or a child is fatally ill. Where is hope for you? Now this doesn't mean the Christian doesn't suffer in these things. We do suffer. That's the point of the passage. But at the end of the day, our suffering is built upon a foundation of hope. Is this where your hope is? Has anyone ever asked you, what do you really hope in in life? Have you ever had the opportunity to share it? Are you ready to do it if they ask you? So after hearing this message of this week, Someone comes up and they ask you, what will you say to them? Be prepared. That's what he's saying. Be prepared to tell them where your true hope is. It's not in a, a political party getting in office. That's not our hope. It, it's not in the markets continuing to soar. That's not our hope. It's not in the great doctor's report we get from our exam. That's not our hope. Those are all fine things. But we don't build anything upon that. Our hope is found in nothing else but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Fourth, fourth, you see it in verse, I think it's 16, having a good conscience. In suffering, we want to have a good conscience. And what I mean by this is that um, if we are knee-deep in sin, we have trouble being a witness. 
for Christ in suffering. If we're walking in unconfessed, repeated sin, it's hard for us to be able to speak to the hope of God that is within us. I mean, you know the feeling. I mean, if you've just bathed yourself in some sin, and then someone wants to pray or talk about God, there's a reticence that we have. We feel hypocritical. We feel duplicitous. We feel as if, you know, you kind of want to get, you want to back up a little bit, pray a little bit, wait a day or two, and then approach God again. And it really marginalizes our ability to witness. And so I think what Peter's saying here is, in suffering, confess your sins. Seek God's grace. Remember the gospel, the gospel that we've already seen twice in this book. Refresh yourself in it. That's what I do when I'm convicted of sin. Uh, before, well, my, my gut reaction is to sometimes excuse myself. But then I go back and I say, no, the gospel is for me to cleanse me, to cleanse my conscience, and to remind me that I'm in fact forgiven. And that's what he's saying here. You know, Paul wrote in Acts 24, 16, he says, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. That that's what the Christian does. The, the, Christian is, the Christian is constantly looking through his life, not in a morose, kind of inward focused, but God, like in Psalm 139, search me and try me, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting life. In other words, God, convict, so that I can have a clean conscience. Because you know what? When I'm walking with God, my boldness is greater. When I'm struggling with sin, my boldness grows weak. And that's all Peter's saying. Keep your conscience. Do you confess your sin on a regular basis? I mean, do, do you, when you get at home or when you wake up in the morning, before you start the day, do you think, how's my marriage going? How are my friendships going? Am I walking in a right manner with them? What my eyes are seeing, what my mouth is saying, what my mind is thinking, do you ever consider you know, Socrates is the one that says an unexamined life is not worth living. You know, we, we have to examine our lives. And again, it's not to lead us into a pit of despair. It's actually to lead us to the heights of delight because we're reminded of the beauty of the gospel. So, so what Peter's saying here is very, very practical. He's saying that in suffering, you're to consider the blessing that God has promised to the Christian, that imperishable inheritance, that you are to honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, Consider his otherness. You are to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within you to anyone who asks, and you are to keep your conscience clear. And do you notice the practical import of it? Look in 16 and 17 again. He says, he says having a good conscience then, at the end of this string of ideas, he says, when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. We're not looking for anybody to feel full of shame. But your behavior following his instructions, will lead them to see the foolishness of their accusations, and it will play a role in leading them to salvation. Going back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Remember how live, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that even though they speak evil of you, when they see your good deeds, that's what these are, they may praise your Father on the day of visitation. So that's kind of what we see. That's the first bucket here, right? How do we handle suffering? How we think about suffering? How should we per persevere in suffering? I gave you four ideas. Now we're going to turn the ship a little bit to 18. Now when we go to 18 to 22, Peter is going to motivate us. There's a certain word there, and words are important. Important, like four. Four is an important word in the Bible because it gives us reasons. It gives us an explanation. 
It tells us how we're to relate the paragraphs together. Words are important. And so he says, for Christ suffered. Peter is now going to use Christ as an illustration, but also as a motivation to help us walk in faith in the midst of suffering. Now, I will be very straight up with you. These are very difficult verses here. Uh, it is kind of ironic that Peter in his second letter, chapter 3.16 says some of the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand. And I'm thinking he might have forgotten about his first letter. Um, this is what Martin Luther said about the passage I'm going to explain to you. Martin Luther, decent scholar, right, fairly, fairly kind of a, a shining light reformation. He says, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has, and there has been no one who has explained it. Well, yours truly is going to take a swing at it. <laughs> but I, I do it recognizing that when you come to obscure texts, number one, we don't want to be dogmatic in our understanding of it. And number two, we don't want to be ahistorical. In other words, we don't want to fail to learn from history. We don't want to fail to look at all the interpretive ideas on a text. We want to see those upon whose shoulders we stand. What have they thought about this text? And then three, we don't want to ever develop some novel idea or doctrine from an obscure text. We always want to interpret the obscure with the clear. We don't try to take the obscure and translate the clear. So clear always shines light on the obscure. This is an obscure text. But 18, we'll start out there, is a little bit more straightforward. So here's, what it, here's the way I want to look at this section of Scripture. Uh, and I know that I will underwhelm you with this explanation, and I know that I won't satisfy you, so I'm sorry about that. I'm not going to try to cover every alternative view in this thing, because it'll just go down a thousand trails that won't help us. If you want resources on that, I'll be happy to furnish them to you. I want to look at 18 to 22 in this way. I want to look at Christ, because if we lift him up, he'll draw men to himself. I want to see that Christ has descended into death. Into death. I didn't say hell, I said into death. Secondly, Christ was made alive in the Spirit. He was vindicated by God. And then three, Christ ascended to the right hand of God. So we're going to look at it around those three poles, if you will. First, you see in 18 that Christ has descended into death. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Folks, this is probably one of the most beautiful expressions of the gospel. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That's what he done. He has suffered once. He took sins in his body, our sins, in his body. He bore God's wrath for those sins on his body to bring us to God. He is the righteous one. We are the unrighteous. Our unrighteous acts have been given to him. His righteousness has been given to us. He suffered one time. You know, in the Old Testament, they repeated the sacrifices year after year after year. He only did it once. Why? Because his sacrifice was so perfect. He's so sufficient that God is satisfied with it. There's no more work that needs to be done. It's finished. You don't add to it. All your acts of piety, they do not add to his work. His work was his and his alone to do. And he did it, and he did it to perfection, such that God says, well done. He's satisfied. He accepts it. 
So Christ died once for our sins, once. But it was to bring us to God. So when we talk about the nature of the gospel, and we think about the forgiveness of God and the deliverance from sin and the escape from judgment, those are all great things, but they're just a means to an end. The end is he brought us to God. That's the good news, that we now have a relationship with God. We can be blessed in him. We are his. He is ours. This is the beauty. So Peter's trying to encourage us. Those of us who will be facing suffering, look to Christ. He also suffered, but his suffering has saved you. It's delivered you. His suffering is to be an encouragement to you. This is the way the writer of Hebrews took it. He says this in chapter 12, Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Similar language as Peter. Consider him, so he's telling you, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So it's an encouragement to look upon Christ. So, do you see that his suffering was to meet our greatest needs? Perhaps you've heard that expression before, you know, if we needed, you know, if, if our greatest problem was political, he would have sent a statesman. If our greatest problem was financial, he would have sent an economist. If our greatest problem was, you know, military, he would have sent a general. No, but our greatest problem is spiritual. It's alienation from God. It's alienation from one another because of our own inward focus, our own inward sin. And so he sent a savior. Do you know that he has suffered for your sins? Would you say, my sins have been paid for? This is what the Christian says, that all my sins have been paid for by him, that he has suffered for them. I will never suffer for my sins. I will never come into judgment for my sins. Can you say that? I'll often ask people, and perhaps you ask people as well, you know, what gives you the right to think that you'll enter heaven with God? And many times the response is, well, I've been a pretty good person, and right away I know Christ hasn't suffered for their sins, or they don't understand that he has, because they think it's their acts of piety or their, or their good moralistic life that somehow makes them worthy of living with God. But it's for Christ's suffering for our sins to bring us to God. There will be nothing else that brings you to God. Now, if, if he hasn't suffered for your sins, then what do you do with them? I, I, how do you deal with the guilt and the false loves and the lies and, and, the, and the false affections? What do you do with it? I, I mean, most of us, we tend to move either towards excusing our sins, you know, in terms of, well, nobody was hurt, it was consensual. Well, that, that may work for a season until it's used against you. If you're sinned against, you're not so sure that you weren't hurt or that it was consensual. Or others want to say, well, well, I, you know, blame it on somebody. It's somebody else's fault, not yours. And that doesn't really help remove the guilt. I mean, it tends to ruin relationships more than remove the guilt. Now, some of us want to say, well, you know what, I've, I've changed my life, and look at all these good things I've done. Well, maybe you have had some degree of personal reformation. But how much good do you have to do to be brought to God? And what do you do with all the bad stuff? You can't get rid of that. You're just piling the good on the bad. No, Christ alone has suffered for sin. So, so if you're a Christian here, you're rejoicing over this fact. This is the gospel for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, suffering and dying for our sins to bring us to God. That's what makes us Christians. 
Okay, the second thing Peter wants us to think about, though, is that Christ was made alive in the Spirit. Now, what does this mean? This is where it's going to get a bit murky. Okay, so he was made alive in the Spirit. Most scholarship would think and thinks that, that that means he was raised with a spiritual body. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't material, right? Because he would eat fish, but he could walk through walls. Uh, the women that just saw him, they grabbed his ankles, but he could travel without effort. So being made alive in the Spirit seems to imply that resurrected body. Material, spiritual, it's going to be different. You're going to have one if you're a Christian. When you see him, you'll be like him. But he was raised in the Spirit, and he proclaimed to the Spirit's in prison. Now, what does this mean? Well, to proclaim doesn't necessarily mean to preach the gospel. It's not the, the specific word. which It can mean that, but it doesn't have to mean that. Now, the spirits in prison, who are these spirits? Well, is it the demons back in Genesis 6? Is it the demons Jesus cast out of his ministry? Is it the unbelievers, these spirits, though the word's not really used for human beings? And where's prison? What is prison? Is it, is it the underworld? Is it hell? Or is it just a prison? Well, there's a lot of different views. But let me, let me just share kind of a, a general one that I find kind of intriguing. That when Jesus was raised in the Spirit and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, he was announcing to all his vindication, his conquering of sin, death, and Satan. He was declaring to all that he was now victorious. I kind of picked that up because in 22, these spirits are underneath him, it says. These angels, these principalities are underneath him now. So it seems to be that he was raised in the spirit and he's proclaiming to all his victory. And God is showing his vindication over sin and the certainty of our salvation because of his being raised. So I, I think when he died in death, bore our sins, raised to life, he proclaimed to all the underworld, all those who've died, all the spirit, I'm now king, I'm now Lord, I'm now being exalted. I think that's what he's saying. And, and, and you may want to ask, well, what's Noah doing in here? Well, that's a great question. I, I, I would say that Noah may be this, he may be in here for this reason. Noah was a righteous man, and he suffered for it. God tells him to build an ark. Now think about that. You go build an ark. You're nowhere near the water, but go build an ark. Build a big boat, right? It had never rained, so people didn't understand the idea of flooding or rain or anything. It had never rained, the Bible says. He's building an ark, and the people are beginning to laugh at him. You know, he wasn't building a trailer. Do you realize that? He didn't build a trailer because they had to be saying, why are you building a boat in the middle of nowhere? Where is it going to go? How are you going to get it to the sea? And so they were mocking him. We know in Peter that he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. So he was preaching, calling for people to repent. So he was suffering. And there was just a few of them, Noah and his family, just eight of them. And they're under the pressure of all these people who are disbelieving and walking in a manner unworthy to God. And, and I think Peter's saying to this church in Asia Minor, he's saying, Peter's your example. He was a faithful man. He remained obedient to God. And I saved him. I brought judgment. I destroyed the world, but I saved him. I'm going to bring judgment to Rome, and I'm going to save you. 
I think there's a parallel there. We're to see ourselves as Noah in times of testing. Noah was small in number. The, the Christians in Asia Minor were a blip on the screen. And the weight of Rome, I mean, the Roman government was awesome, powerful. The legions of Rome were huge. They were the greatest fighting force. And he says, you know what? I saved Noah and I can save you. I think it's meant to encourage him. Just as Noah was saved through an ark lifting above the waters of judgment, he says, now baptism saves you. So Peter's drawing this parallel here between the waters of judgment and now to baptism, that when you enter these waters of judgment, I will deliver you out of them. Now notice that he says, immediately following, when he says, baptism that now saves, not the removal of dirt, I think he's immediately trying to, trying to um, remove the idea that somehow the actual act of going in the water is salvific, it's salvation. I think he's trying to move away from that. I think he's trying to simply say this, that baptism signifies the deliverance that you're going to have. Because he says, not the removal of dirt, but the appeal of a good conscience. In other words, baptism is us coming before God, entering the water, saying, God, I appeal to you to clean my conscience and to forgive my sins. It's an appeal. It's a crying out to God for the forgiveness that is now ours because of Christ. I think that's what he's saying. The appeal of a good conscience. God, I am guilty. I'm laden with sin. I understand it now. You've given me Jesus. Cleanse my conscience with his work that I may be a child of God. I think that's what the appeal is. So just as the ark lifted Noah and his family up, so Christ becomes our ark, as it were. And he saves us from the waters of... God will bring judgment upon this world, but you will not come under judgment. You've come out of judgment because of Christ. So I think he's saying that, that that Christ has been vindicated. He can save. He saved Noah. He's going to save you. And then thirdly, look what he says in 22. He says this, that who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God. Folks, I just looked at that this morning. I was just dwelling on it and thinking about it, meditating on it, rejoicing over it. This is a verse that needs to be pondered. I, I mean, Jesus Christ hasn't just suffered for sins once. He hasn't just been raised to life and now victorious and promising salvation to all who believe, but now he's sitting at the right hand of God. I mean, this is a position, the right hand was a position of strong authority. Authority. Look at every angel, every power, every principality is subject to him. There is no, there is no force, there is no wickedness, there is no threat that can assail you. Every one of them is on a leash, and in the hand of Christ is the leash. Nothing's moving toward you. There is nothing that we need to fear. There is no threat. He is on the throne ruling over all things for us, for the church, as was prayed. This is, this is great news for the Christian. Not just the deliverance of sin, but the victorious reigning of Christ. So for the Christian here, if you're Christian, I want you thinking that I need to study, meditate, look through 18 to 22. He has died. He has been made, uh, he has been made alive and vindicated that his work has been accepted by God and therefore now he's at the right hand. That this, we don't need to run from culture. Many Christians now are growing fearful of culture. Don't run from it, run to it. Be zealous to do good works. Involve yourself. Take your Christian ideas, your Christian worldview, and thrust yourself in the middle of culture. 
We are not separatists. We don't come out. We go in. Why? Because he's sitting on the throne of God. Look at how you can not repay evil for evil, but bless. Look for those people that have caused you suffer. Love them. Serve them. Bless them. Let them ask you, what is the hope that you have? Be gracious. Be forgiving. Move forward with grace and kindness. Dwell on this. Let it motivate and encourage you. And for those of you who have been uh, baptized as a child and you've come to faith in Christ, uh, let this challenge your need to be truly baptized. You, You see here in the text, it's an appeal for a good conscience. In other words, a baby doesn't have a conscience of sin isn't aware of it. You have to be old enough to understand that my sins haven't just affected mommy or daddy, but they've affected a holy God. And I'm coming under conviction of that. And I want to appeal to God for this good conscience. Because that's what baptism symbolizes. It's an outward act of an inward change. And so I would encourage you to consider your baptism. And for those of you who have been baptized, rejoice over that. That is that outward display. I want to identify with Christ. I'm calling out to him. And then again, for those who are here and you're just looking at Christianity, notice this judgment speak. It isn't a hangover from the Middle Ages. I mean, I want you to understand how real judgment is. You know, in Scripture, death, human death, is a form of judgment. Right? In Genesis 2, God said the soul that sins will die. And then in Genesis 3, they sinned. And in Genesis 4 and 5, they died. In fact, read Genesis chapter 5. It's a kind of a neat chapter. It's a listing of all the people that had been born, and it listed all the people that died. By the way, all the people that were born had also died. There wasn't anybody that got through Genesis 5. They all died. it's, It's God reminding us that this is a temporal judgment on this world, in this life. That all the people that we bury, it's it's a constant sign pointing to us, there is a judgment that is greater than this judgment that's coming. And this is why we find death so despairing, because we don't know what's on the other side. Why do you think people are striving, and perhaps you're here today, and you're striving to do the best you can at work, and to to have the greatest amount of joy in this life, and have best relationships. People that don't know that there's something on the other side try to get all the life that is intended there from here, and it won't work. And that's why death is so despair-causing. It's despair causing because he tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in your hearts. This is the neat thing about Christianity, is we want it to be true. I, I don't care if you're not a Christian, you want it to be true. Uh, this is a beautiful story. I mean, to think that God would send a son, this is missions at its core, that he would send a son to save us, that we might be delivered, and to be with God forever where there's no more mourning, crying, or pain. The old order of things, the things that we're struggling with, it's all gone away. We'll be with God forever. Can you imagine that? And that is offered to us in Christ. So, so in the midst of suffering, we're a people with hope. In suffering, when we encounter it, we're going to think, no, 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 I'm going to focus on the blessing to come. I'm going to honor Christ, the Lord is holy. I'm going to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's within me. And I'm going to maintain holiness and purity before God, keeping my conscience clear. And I'm going to dwell on Christ. I'm going to look at his sufferings. I'm going to look at his vindication. And I'm going to look at his ascension. And from there, I will draw strength and power. 
Let's take a minute now and just pray and, and ask God for grace. Help, ask Him to help you understand this, define this, to be encouraging and strengthening to you. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a minute.